I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This week's guest is Kimberly Wilson. Now, Kimberly never fails to amaze me with the knowledge she shares. And I think this episode will be no different because... For want of a better phrase, it was quite literally mind-blowing. Um, we're discussing uh, how to look after a healthy brain and how fitness and movement can play a part in supporting a healthy brain. And it is, quite frankly, fascinating. Um, so I really, really hope you enjoy this one. As always, if you do enjoy it, um, please tag me on social media at TallyRye and use the hashtag TrainHappyPodcast. And I would love to hear what you think of the podcast. And if you are enjoying the series so far, then please leave us a review on iTunes or the platform you're using because um, it really helps other people hear about the podcast and support it going forward. So we'd very much appreciate that. This week's episode is sponsored by Pavilion Books. Now you may recognize the name because they actually published my book. They published Train Happy. And so I'm very grateful to them uh, as a publisher for really believing in me, believing in intuitive exercise and movement and helping me realize the vision for Train Happy. They have such a brilliant team there. I felt so supported throughout the whole process. And they don't just make books like Train Happy, They make beautiful cookbooks, craft books, uh, children's and textile art books. And they also make the books for the National Trust, Good Housekeeping and Molly Makes. So they have a whole range of stuff. So you're likely to have had a Pavilion book at one time or another. If you want to find more about Pavilion books and their current releases and what's out now, head to pavilionbooks.com and you can find out more about them so thank you pavilion i really appreciate your support not only for this book but in helping me kick off this series so thank you so much Today I am joined by Kimberly Wilson, a chartered psychologist specialising in psychology, brain health and nutritional psychology. You may know her as Food and Psych Online or from her brilliant Stronger Minds podcast or even from Great British Bake Off. Um, She has written a book called How to Build a Healthy Brain, which is out in March. So Kimberly is the perfect person to have on to have a deep chat about exercise, its links with brain health and our mental health. So Kimberly. It's quite the intro. All right. You deserve it. So Kimberly, in Train Happy, um, we wanted to put, well, I wanted to put a big emphasis on um, discussing the mental health benefits of exercise because I feel that they don't really get much airtime. We don't really know about them. And yet when I talk to people, when I talk to people online or to clients or teach classes, so much of the feedback is, you know, this really helps me clear my head. It helps me um, relieve my stress. Um, but I would be really keen to know the um, what the research says about the benefits of exercise. 
Yeah, well, I mean, it's kind of like, where do we start? Because next to sleep, exercise is probably one of the most important interventions for your brain health. And that's not just in terms of your psychological health, the things that you were talking about, in terms of your mood and your sense of well-being, your concentration, the kind of cognitive functions. It actually changes the shape and structure and function of the brain. So, for example, one study just published found that even people who are very severely unwell, so people with chronic psychosis and schizophrenia, who went on a an aerobic exercise intervention, increased the thickness of their cortices, so they actually built extra brain capacity, extra brain volume. Wow. And that's really important because actually what we see is lower brain volume in people with chronic psychological illnesses. So, I mean, we can get into the details, but- Let's do you know, it. Exercise <laughs> really changes and improves the overall health structure and function of the brain. And so completely independent of its effects on body size, body shape, you know, your body composition, we should be thinking about exercise as a mental health intervention and a brain health intervention. I think that's that's something we I really wanted to get across in um train happy because it can have like you said such positive impacts on not only your well-being but you like you said your actual brain and i was just curious as to how what that looked like in terms of you working with clients and mm -hmm. how you would use that in like a clinical setting what what does that like look like okay so it changes but absolutely i use exercise as uh, it's part of my criteria when people are coming in I'm asking about it in my assessment to find out what access to exercise or movement people have um, and but people come to me for various different reasons so sometimes people might be you know over exercising and doing too much sometimes people aren't doing any exercise at all sometimes we're not really thinking about uh, their bodies or their at all we're thinking more about managing their depression but can we use movement as an intervention or as a kind of an adjunct supportive intervention for their treatment in in order to help them improve their depression and, and absolutely you can we know there's lots and lots of robust evidence demonstrating that exercise is a powerful intervention to help reduce things like depression and anxiety so it depends on the person um, but I'm always thinking really in an integrated kind of holistic way you know how much of this is about what's happening in your mind but how much of it is about what's happening in your body as well yeah and how how common are you seeing that in kind of clinical practice is are you are you um leading the way in that sense of coming at things from that more holistic perspective or is this becoming um you know more commonplace in terms of how um professionals like yourself are working with their clients and things like that mm -hmm. there's a there's slow movement so for a long time you know gps will have been telling people and it, i think it felt quite dismissive i'll oh, go you know you're feeling down go for a walk without really explaining to people why they were getting mm. that information, you know, what effect they could be expecting, how soon they could expect any improvements. And it, I think a lot of people just felt like they were being brushed aside by that sort of information. So it was often ignored. Um, what we are seeing, for example, is in centers around the world, um, in psychiatric units and psychiatric hospitals, they are bringing gyms in and on site so that people who are inpatients in mental health settings have access to exercise and physical activity as part of their treatment so there are some uh, units that are leading the way and kind of pioneering using this as an intervention um, I think in terms of independent practitioners we're a little bit far behind because even now 
that exercise and even the body frankly isn't a core component of psychiatric or psychological trainings so therapists going in people who are going in to become psychologists psychotherapists counselors aren't as as a kind of basic getting information about the importance of nutrition or exercise or sleep on their clients symptoms or their patients outcomes so I think we're a, a bit of a way off before people start seeing this as a kind of frontline intervention before people can expect to go to their therapist and have them ask them okay so how much movement are you getting in what's your relationship with exercise could we perhaps help to support you to use movement as a way of improving your mental health and and then secondarily to that it'll be a little bit longer before I think it's common for the general public to know that it's not just something that your GP's trying to buff, brush you off with. It's actually something that's very, very well evidenced and very powerful as a mental health intervention and that we should be trying to use it as a kind of everyday mental health self-care intervention. And so when you're working with clients in the clinic, are you recommending a specific type of exercise? I know um, obviously you've got like NHS guidelines that recommend 150 minutes a week um, for uh, our physical health um, and they do talk about the kind of mental mm -hmm. health aspects mm -hmm. on there as well um, so is there like a specific uh, brilliant type of exercise is it cardio is it strength training is it a bit of everything um, again it, it really depends on who you're talking to um, first of all I think you're always working with that person's individual capabilities, what they like, what they don't like, and their history of exercise, because people can have quite different histories with exercise and movement that can be sometimes traumatic. Um, so if we're thinking about, okay, well, I want you to think about looking after yourself, and I kind of tend to pitch it like that, what might you be able to do um, that you enjoy, and that it becomes something that people give to themselves rather than something they do to themselves. Um, in terms of your, more specifically of your question, which kind of exercise is best, actually, it's a bit of everything. So we know, for example, that aerobic or cardio ex exercise can improve what's called perfusion, which is the blood flow in the brain. And we know that when your brain is getting lots of blood, it's also getting lots of nutrients, lots of oxygen, and you get better performance on things like attention, concentration, processing speeds, and um, flexibility, cognitive flexibility. So, um, Aerobic exercise can be good for that, but also strength training exercise, resistance exercise, increases the compounds in the brain that essentially uh, trigger the growth of new brain cells and the new connections in the brain. So, and we know, for example, that older women who do three strength training sessions a week have have fewer lesions, they have like fewer gaps in the brains, so less brain damage than older women who don't or only just do one uh, training session a week. So. Yeah, it can grow your brain. <laughs> that is, like, yeah, it's it's crazy. And it's kind of, as you were saying before, that, like, this is just starting to get picked up um, in, in kind of more um, mainstream kind of psychology, I suppose. Um, that when we know this stuff, it's like, why haven't we been doing this for the last Honestly, and one 20, of, years? in the books, so I obviously, I go through all of that in the book, but one of the, the big... Uh, interventions that I think people really need to get on. I've got a whole section called Why Yoga Works. And yoga is actually almost, a, if you were to design a kind of physical intervention that was perfect for the brain, yoga is one of them. Um, and it's because it com combines 
strength in terms of you know if you're going down into chaturanga mm-hmm. and all of those kind of holding postures and yeah. so you've got the postures you've got the balance postures and actually we know that as you get older holding onto your balance is a sign of kind of is important for your brain health um as well as stretching and animal studies at least show us that stretching your muscles reduces inflammation and reducing inflammation is good for the brain but also you've got the breath practices and the breath practices can um, stimulate what's called the vagus nerve which is a big really important nerve that connects the brain and the gut and lots of organs in between and again that's really potently anti-inflammatory and also switches on your parasympathetic nervous system which is what takes you into a relaxation state so for people particularly people with IBS so there are lots of trials that show that yoga is a really good intervention for IBS it's as uh, successful at treating IBS as the FODMAPS diet so a nutritional intervention Um, and breathing practices can help manage depression and anxiety so often with people who perhaps are really struggling with people who are very anxious or people who are kind of tend to spend a lot of time in a kind of fight flight mode like a little bit up here Mm. then yoga is a really good intervention to try to get into a regular practice of slowing down and on top of that you've got the meditation the focus the attention the breath practice as well as a holistic integrated movement practice which also talks about compassion so yoga is one of you know if i'm really recommending something for people who are in treatment you know everybody should try and get aerobic and strength training in all the time in general anyway but for people who are in treatment I think yoga is a really good adjunct therapy that's so interesting and really making me think that I need to do more yoga in my life (laughs) um do you know what I have started doing recently in terms of wanting to do something more mindful Mm -hmm. and do something that helps calm me but is physical is swimming Mm -hmm. because no one I just I feel like when you're in the pool, you can't talk to anyone. Mm-hmm. You can't be near your phone or any technology. And you just have to focus on your breath mm-hmm. because you, it's you really to. hard. It's really, really hard. <laughs> it's kind um, of it's really hard. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's be, that's been kind of something I wanted to do as a way of like switching off. Mm. But I do think um, I did... Um, earlier this week, I did some a form of kind of mobility work, but it was kind of with a yoga kind of underpinning mm-hmm. um and i even just that immediate relief of that kind of anxious feeling mm-hmm. it's amazing what just connecting to your body feels like and i and that, something that's a big theme in train happy and the and like intuitive fitness concept is that kind of strengthening that connection mm-hmm. and building that trust and i think um like you're saying things like yoga especially really help you to connect with yourself in a perhaps a way that you may not have been able to do in a intense spin class Mm. or in a hit workout because you almost don't have time to do that it's like you know it's all you know up here rather Mm. than slowing it down and but also that the instructors are always orienting you to go inside aren't they they're always thinking Mm. all right now think about where that particular piece of sensation is and also there's so much about a yoga practice which is psychological which is you know uh, staying with tension staying with discomfort you know holding on a little bit longer breathing through it which is to be honest quite a lot of therapy is about mm. you know managing uncertainty holding on when something feels intolerable finding the strength and the compassion within there are lots of kind of really nice overlaps between the psychology of both of them which i think make them really really compatible as a kind of side-by-side treatments yeah i think that's a big takeaway for me. I'm going to put that in my back pocket and 
um, remember that. Now you mentioned earlier about older women and mm. I was just really intrigued about the links between exercises and things like Alzheimer's mm. and those generative diseases. Um, what, obviously you mentioned about strengthening our brain mm. connections. Is that contributing to preventing potential development of Alzheimer's? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, and I think this is one of the big things that I try to get across because as people get older, as you can, as people get older, they get more and more worried about their brain health. So I think it's something like 70% of people over 50 are worried about Alzheimer's. Worry about Alzheimer's has overtaken worry about cancer. You know, as you get older, people are more and more worried about taking care of their brains. Yet, most people don't know that there are things that you can do to reduce your risk of Alzheimer's disease. Most, you know, we have this idea that it's just something that gets, that happens as you happens. get older. Yeah. yeah, it's the luck of the draw. Fingers crossed, you'll be all right. And, you know, we, we just have to see what happens. And that's not the case at all. So even on the NHS website, so this publicly available, it's right there. It says, dementia is not an inevitable part of aging. And so uh, an international Lancet commission has said that if people, and it's, you know, it's very much best case scenario. If people took the best case scenario information, so if you did all of the things that we know can help reduce your risk, which is things like not smoking, watching your alcohol, taking regular exercise, uh, staying socially connected. If you did all of those things, we could reduce global Alzheimer's cases by about 30%. Wow. Which is around 11 million cases. Wow. Let's just take a moment. <laughs> yeah. It's extraordinary. So this disease, which is now the leading killer in the UK, um, so it kills, more people die of dementia and Alzheimer's disease than they do of heart disease and is growing exponentially. I think it's going to be, at the moment, global cases are somewhere around, well, no, in 2012, I think they're around 50 million, but it's gonna be 150 million, 130, 150 million by in the next 10 years. Wow. So the cases are growing and growing and growing. And so there's something, it's not just something that happens, it's something about the way that we're living, mm. which is increasing our risk of these brain health diseases. And, and one of those is an increase in, in sedentary lifestyles right? yeah because there are so many things about movement which are which we've touched on already um which are so important for the brain so increasing perfusion um increasing the just availability of nutrients and oxygen in the brain for example but particularly bdnf so when you exercise also when you're exposed to heat and lots of other things, uh, your brain releases a compound called BDNF and also IGF-1, so which is a growth hormone. Um, and both of these work to trigger, to stimulate the growth of new brain cells. And why that's important is um, because of a, a concept called cognitive reserve. And cognitive reserve is the idea, it's, I call it a pension plan for your brain. So basically, um, and it comes from a study that happened way back in the 80s, way back, <laughs> back in the 80s. Um, and some neuroscientists were looking at the brains of uh, older people who'd been in a nursing home in New York. And they, the thing about Alzheimer's disease is that there's usually a very, very good correlation between the symptoms that you have when you're alive and the amount of damage that you can see in your brain after your death in post-mortem. So the researchers were looking at these people's brains. So they assessed them when they're alive and said, okay, these people have dementia, these people don't have dementia, these people have severe Alzheimer's, these people are fine. 
And then they found this really extraordinary thing when they looked at their brains in post-mortem. And they found that there were some people who, despite having really severe lesions in their brain that we would really expect them to have quite serious Alzheimer's disease, were absolutely fine. They didn't have any symptoms when they were alive. And what they found was extraordinary about these people's brains is that they were heavier than the people who did have symptoms and did have lesions. And so they thought, okay, so what's this? Were these people just born with heavier brains? They thought, well, no, probably not. Actually, what we think happens is that something about their lifestyles means that over their lifetimes, they built up extra brain capacity. So like a pension plan. Mm. So like, wait, if you start your pension plan in your 20s, you're going to have more to draw on than mm. someone who starts it in their 40s. So something about these people's lifestyles meant that they built up this extra brain capacity so that when they did start to develop dementia, their brains could compensate. They could kind of move around the lesions or there's extra brain capacity in order for them to be able to carry on and be okay without losing function, without kind of showing any symptoms. And one of the things about exercise, and kind of to bring it right back around, mm. um, and the promotion of, of BDNF is that it promotes this extra growth, this extra capacity. So like I said, with the schizophrenia patients, that giving them re regular aerobic exercise increase the thickness of their brains, it's the same mechanism. And so what we're really, what I'm really trying to get across to people is that if you can start doing more of these lifestyle factors, eating well, so we know, for example, omega-3 increases um, BDNF in the brain, which upregulates this growth of these new brain cells. If you eat well, if you get regular exercise, if you're taking care of your sleep, if you're continuing to learn, so learning is another way that you can upregulate BDNF, then you're building your brain pension plan. And you can, you know, there's no guarantees. Sometimes people can have these pristine lifestyles and they get unlucky, mm -hmm. but, you're increasing your chances of delaying getting it or perhaps for some very lucky people getting it at all. So, and exercise is really the most robust way we have of upregulating BDNF production in the brain. And it is relatively, to some extent, it's accessible in the sense that we could all go for a walk. Anything. Or we could, you could um, do, air do something in your, in your living bedroom. room. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't have to be, you don't, it doesn't have to be expensive. It doesn't have to take up a lot of space. You know, you don't have to go anywhere. So many good free online exercise courses, whether mm. it's yoga or, or, you know, body weight hit in your living room. Yeah. It absolutely all counts. It absolutely all counts. Yeah. Cause there's tons of stuff on YouTube. There's so, I mean, I know I've put out free resources, but I also know there's a ton of other mm. stuff um on youtube as an example of of things that you can do um even you know if it's like i mean i'm of the mindset that you know 10 minutes of something um is better than 10 minutes of nothing mm. if if that's what you feel that you can give and i think um that's a to me part of you know getting to a point where you have a i think a healthy relationship with exercise is finding that um intrinsic motivation mm. and i think learning about these kind of things you're like damn like, <laughs> damn like this could really be you know this could be so beneficial for me mm. and you know this this is um and huge not just and for significant now, but for the long for the term future yeah you know this is about having a good older age this is about you know 
being able to be independent as you get older and still being able to have good social relationships and connect with your friends and family like it's it's so important and we're living longer and longer so it's it's i think the world health organization called it you know the, the crisis the health crisis of our of the 21st century we really need to get a grip of this and exercise is one of the ways mm. that we can really help do that and again it doesn't need to be um you know people again have this idea of exercises exercise classes you know if you if you dance dance yeah if you any way that you want to move if you want to do roller derby if you want to climb like any way that moves you and gets you to move counts as far as your brain knows it's just it's just getting some lovely delicious chemicals that's gonna help it yes like <laughs> preach it louder because <laughs> that's something that i've i want people to know that it's like ultimately do the thing you enjoy and you're gonna want to do it, look mm. forward to doing it. And you're picking up all these benefits along the way, which is incredible. Now I wanna take a slight um, pivot, I suppose, mm-hmm. and talk about the concept of, I, ha- I hear a lot of people saying, and, and we kind of touched on this earlier about the feedback I get from people saying how great exercise is for their mental health and how it supports them. Um, and we spoke about how you use it as an intervention um, in clinic mm-hmm. and how you use it as part of, 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 of treating people. Um, but what do you think of the phrase when people say exercise is my therapy? Um, <laughs> exercise, you know, that we, if we're exercising, then mental health box is ticked. You, I'm sure you've heard of this. I'm thinking your face. Totally I feel, I feel like this. people wouldn't dare to say that to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. But I get a lot of, pe- you know, I, I know people like, do you know what? I was like, maybe you should talk to someone. I'll just go for a run or I'll just go to the gym. What? Let's discuss. <laughs> Let's discuss. Um, okay. So to an extent, I can, I can sympathize and I can understand, right? So yes, when you exercise and when you exercise regularly, you get lots of these psychological benefits. You get a release of endorphins. Mm. So you feel better and you feel less pain and you get a slight euphoria, um, which if you've been feeling low is gonna shift you out of that or at least greatly improve it, right? Um, You're going to get better clarity of thought. You're gonna have more energy, more ability to pay attention. Um, You do get improvements in mood. So there are lots of ways in which, you know, I can kind of buy in to the idea that exercise is therapeutic. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's that's the that's the thing I was looking for. Um, but of course, therapy is something completely different. Yeah. You know? um, and in therapy, we're really thinking about the causes and the underlying roots of pain, discomfort, dissatisfaction, distress, um, stress itself, and absolutely exercise. As I say, can help support and to mitigate that. But the risk is that you'll just end up putting lots and lots and lots and lots of band-aids over the issue rather than addressing it altogether. And then I guess the other risk is that if you only have exercise to draw on, it becomes the only thing that you use. And then then you're stuck into uh, the risk of, of over-exercising, maybe addiction to exercise, overtraining, and then the consequent risks and problems that come from that. Yeah, and I will speak to that from personal experience of and having in therapy at the moment having these revelations of like huh that's <laughs> why I did that and I I, I maybe I 
it's interesting because I you know we've had conversations about this in the past and being able to observe in other people mm-hmm. how they form their habits with exercise, but also understanding why I've had my past habits. And so my uh, backstory is that, um, which I didn't include in the book, but when I was 17, my dad died and I quickly not moved on, but I was quite like, just Mm. carry on. I'm just going to live my life and Mm. just going to do it. And even despite being really sad and things, but you know, I just wanted to carry on. Um, But it was in drama school when other factors were at play that I started to turn to exercise and food as a means to cope with that situation. Mm. Um, And I always understood in hindsight that I'd turned to exercise and food as a means to cope and a means to control stuff that was going on at the time mm-hmm. um but it was really interesting talking to my therapist about this and she said well a lot of us want to be in our bodies so we don't have to be in our minds mm-hmm. and that really clicked for me because I was like that's exactly what it was I didn't know I didn't I I, I wouldn't say in the time that I felt like particularly like I'm super sad and I'm Mm -hmm. grieving in this moment but it was like this underlying thing where I think I just wanted to focus Mm. on exercise and I wanted to just do that and if I could just sort out my body and everything from the neck downwards and powerful I'm in control and you're and yeah you're in kind of absolute control Mm. and that's lovely in comparison to the chaos that you feel is happening in the world around you or inside you kind of emotionally and it, yeah, it, it, she, it really got me like, huh, yes. <laughs> um, I'm this penny dropped. Um, and I think, yeah, it's important to discuss. I think that whilst exercise, can you say, can support mm. your, um, can support your mental health, there is a, there is kind of a threshold of when we go over into that place where it becomes detrimental and we can over exercise. Mm. Now, what kind of criteria would you give for people who you what kind of maybe questions would you ask to people who you felt perhaps were entering that kind of over exercising Mm -hmm. becoming too reliant on exercise situation so you'd kind of look at the way people talk about it i Mm. think and i'd be looking for clues as to a, a kind of intensity of need for it rather than it being something either that's habitual or incidental and also how much and which is a similar way to food how spontaneous you can be with it so is it all right for you to cancel something because a friend's having drinks or someone you haven't seen is in town so you have to cancel your class so you can meet up with them because that's important or do you end up you know cancelling the friend and going to your spin class you know what are the compensations what are you sacrificing Mm. in order to make your exercise commitments um do you continue to work on injuries or when you know there's a niggle or there's you know something's not quite right um and how do you feel when you don't do it you know does it have a a really significant impact on your mood are you then thinking oh i'm useless or i'm lazy or do you end up kind of full of castigation and criticism for not being able to do this one quite small part of your life so Mm. I'd be looking at a range of questions around that sort of the kind of the quality of the relationship with the exercise and how how do you feel about um things like fitness trackers in this equation 
um, because I see that I personally choose not to wear one because I know that I find it quite triggering for me personally because mm-hmm. I've I find it brings me back to focusing on the numbers that I don't want to know <laughs> um <laughs> and it and even that awareness kind of mm-hmm. can make me think about oh I shouldn't have eaten that or oh should I do extra here when actually I'm learning to trust myself um how do you see that play out in people who may ha- start to f- have that slightly unhealthy relationship with a fitness tracker as well mm. well I, I have to admit that I have a kind of very I see a very skewed example yes. of it with the people that come to see me who are already kind of aware that they might have issues with their bodies or their relationship with their bodies um and exercise and you know, I suppose I want to leave space for people who can have a healthy relationship with them. So the mm. people who are like, oh, maybe 10,000 steps a day is just an interesting target to have. And maybe if I get to 990, I'll do 10 more steps. But if I get to seven, oh, sorry, 9,000, um, or if I, but if I only get to seven and a half thousand, you know, I'm not gonna stay up all night pacing the living room. Like, if, if people can have a healthy relationship with it, if mm. they can, you know, take them off. Keep I it, think if you can take it off, and you don't feel anxious about not wearing it, then that's a good sign. Yeah, and we want to leave space for, for, for those people to live their lives without judgment, without someone kind of preaching to them. Like, mm. don't do it. Um, but I think more and more, we're socially conditioned to pay attention to external locuses or loci of control than we are internal ones. And so we are told to pay attention to all of the external reasons to do things. So whether it's because you need to make five out of five workouts that week, or you need to hit this many steps or this much calorie burn, or to even in kind of competitive classes, be at the top ranking Mm. of that class for calorie burn or power output. Or, and, and I think what it really does is to condition us to see ourselves as units of production rather than as individuals yeah and we start to value ourselves for what we can produce or give or show rather than for who we are and i think that's when it becomes dangerous when all of these these things kind of pile on Mm. to tell you that your entire worth is only in what you can produce thank you very much and so that's that's my concern and why i would always be quite careful about asking well wanting people to be quite careful and thinking about why do you need this why do you want this what purpose is it serving Mm. what function is it playing in in your life and could you not do that without it could you not would you not work out if it weren't being tracked or being and uh, putting in the context of social media yeah would you do these things if it wasn't being filmed can you um go to the gym without taking a selfie um these are questions i've had to ask myself (laughs) over the last five years um well seven you know seven eight years i've kind of been sharing this online but in the last couple of years particularly you know do you want to do that do you need to do that who are you doing that for who when you're going to the gym are you doing this for you or are you doing it because people are expecting it of you and really like reassessing that and figuring out coming back to hang on what do i want to do and i think that miss that is the missing link for so many people with with fitness because like you said we're so like right so someone told me i should be doing x amount i mean someone could listen to this podcast and say someone told me i should be doing yoga so i'm going to do yoga 
you know <laughs> someone told me i should be doing this so i've listened to another podcast and they told me i need to be doing crossfit so i'm gonna go do crossfit and then i meant to do some um mm-hmm. i don't know some cardio so i go for a run and i do all these things to tick boxes to please other people or to i think sometimes for validation in a mm-hmm. sense as well and i think um particularly in the the fitness space online i think um a, from personal perspective of sharing so much of my fitness life online mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um i yeah look you know getting that kind of validation of like oh you're doing oh look at you doing this mm, and you're so good you're so oh, good you're such an inspiration I could, I, if i could do that like you um and it's yeah it's really interesting to see how that can happen in like you said seeing for you as your output rather than who you are Mm. um and also sometimes figuring out what your identity is outside of being the fit one yeah absolutely and you see it happen also with food again online Mm. where people are making and taking pictures of food that either they don't like or they don't eat because it's it it gets lots of engagement and gets lots of you know likes and comments and oh that's amazing you're so good I, you're so healthy i'm so impressed you know mm-hmm. and it just builds up in a and particularly on social media in a way which it doesn't happen on doesn't happen in real life is that you have this kind of concrete paper trail that you have this marker in time this fixed record with well this is the person you are you are the fit one or you are mm. the plant-based yep. person and the foodie and it mm. becomes it com- becomes almost an unbreakable identity not just because it's so obvious and overt and visible but also then because people will hold you to it yeah. oh but hey way back then you did this this and this and what about that now now explain yourself mm. and i think it be unless you're very sure of yourself and if you're kind of quite well contained and um you know yourself very very well it can be very difficult to find yourself in a position where you're feeling like you're having to justify maturing or changing your mind or growing you know or learning something new and incorporating that into the way that you you live your life so yeah i think it's there are lots and lots of ways in which people are being nudged into externalizing all of their reasons for being and i think Mm. it would be very good if we could just slightly start to shift the focus back to more internal reasons yeah and i i do think i think this look for validation from fitness and exercises because it's become a new thing to present to people so just having at nice active wear has become like a marker of success mm. um even just wearing lululemon is seen um you know despite whether people work out or not they just want to be seen wearing it mm. because it's it's become a new thing i mean even before it was like very at the beginning you know i'm thinking like six or seven years ago you couldn't really shop on the main street for that much active wear but as no. we've kind of got this new um well athleisure athleisure i mean what does it even mean yeah (laughs) and the rise of um the boutique fitness gyms particularly in cities um so i know london was obviously like super um jam-packed full of them Mm. now but you know it's getting to uh, out across the country and so we have to be seen as people you know oh i work out here Mm. and i go to this gym and i do this class and and it's become 
like the new handbag to own mm. or the new shoes to get. It's like, I got these trainers yeah. and this um, whatever. And I think that's become, that's a new dimension to this that mm. I don't think existed 10 years ago. I don't think it did at all. No. Well, it did and it didn't, right? So we've always, you know, with the grapefruit diet and a cow, you know, yeah. there's always been ever since the aerobics revolution of the kind of 70s and 80s, there has been this a greater fixation on well, basically, since people the West became wealthier and therefore people tended to be when you get wealthy, you get heavier. That's as global traits go, that's what mm -hmm. happens when a country gets richer, the population gets heavier. Um, and so as the West got heavier it became more of an ideal to stay slim. It meant you were trying harder or mm. that you were uh, more disciplined or, so there ended up being a kind of moral aspect to mm. the ability to stay slim or keep trim or look after yourself. Um, so that's always been there. I think where it kind of gets doubled down on is with social media. Um, in as far as now you have hundreds hundreds of thousands of opportunities to see other people who were doing it right yeah and to compare yourself to that or to aspire to that or, or mimic. To, to mimic yeah. or to join the tribe mm. um and i think those things become very very seductive for people and so you've got this mixture of the morality you know the 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 need to look after yourself and health is a moral virtue mm. but also with things like with brands like lululemon sweaty betty who you know absolutely fine but they are expensive so they also become a marker of status mm. so can you afford to wear this kit and can you afford to go to that expensive yoga class that's like 20 quid a pop um and also to be seen doing it and, can, and do you follow the right people and are you eating the right things and taking the right powders so it all gets slightly mixed up in morality status and identity and then in your social standing and we all humans have this innate need to see where we are in the social hierarchy and so we'll want to you know be closer to the people that we admire so we will mimic them and we will want to feel that we're closer to them and we're eating like them and we're tagging the people we admire in the things that we do because we want to get approbation for them we want them to notice us and to validate us and it's, i think it's all very complicated it is. it's so interesting though because i think on social media you feel like those people are so much more tangible and so you can you they're so much closer than celebrities mm. were yeah. um so you feel like you can um you know comment on someone's picture and they could comment back and that feels like really exciting mm. i say that as someone who's definitely commented on like bloggers i love and <laughs> got excited when they commented back um but do you think there's do you think there's a way of using that or do you think there's a way of i don't know being not in that system but being in how much can i phrase this do you can think you do that it well yeah can you is, can that be healthy can that be positive or or is it always going to be that like looking for that like extrinsic value i think more often than not it's probably going to be negative and in as far as we know for example and it's a mixture of um 
innate human characteristics and the things that get n turned up and dialed up because of the nature of social media, mm -hmm. right? So humans, for example, we're an innately visual species. A huge part of our brain is dedicated to understanding and interpreting visual information in the visual field. Um, it links to uh, areas that manage stress and emotionality. So we're hugely visual. So a visual medium like Instagram mm -hmm. is automatically going to connect with us. Um, on top of that, Instagram is largely a young woman's game. Yeah. So something like 80% of users are women and or, and then 80% of them are, I think, 34 and below. You know, it's mm -hmm. a young woman's game. And we know that young women have much more social pressure on their physicality, on their appearance, mm -hmm. on their weight, on their health. So, it, you know, we already start to see this kind of coming together of these particular features that mean okay so there's it's a visual medium for women <laughs> to compare themselves yeah. with other pictures of women so <laughs> it's it's it's, it's not a recipe for success is it really it's a bit it's tricky to see. and and on top of that this idea that we um we all fall for social comparison is a very very natural thing um but it in, in our past, in our evolutionary past, we'd be comparing ourselves to other people in our immediate tribes uh, or on, even in our immediate towns and villages. Mm. And in that sense, it would have been people with whom you probably shared some kind of genetics, yeah. you know, cultural, ethnic, ethnic genetics, probably the same financial, socioeconomic status, probably roughly the same level of education and probably ish the same kinds of privileges. Um, and so that kind of thing was probably not too bad. You probably were up on some traits and, and down on others and it probably balanced out. Um, and even in kind of, you know, more modern times, you'd compare yourself to people at school, perhaps fine. And even then, yeah, you'd have the rich kids and the poor kids or blah, blah, blah. But then you'd go home yeah, and you'd have a bit of a break from it all and you'd be back in people whom you are much more similar to than you are dissimilar to. Um, I think what social media has done has really warped our sense of what a peer is mm. and who is an appropriate person with whom we should be comparing ourselves. And so you'll have, you know, someone who is you know from a poorer background perhaps comparing themselves to kim kardashian and then she says oh well you can be like me if you buy these products and drink these teas and take these lollipops and wear this waist trainer and then but it's it's a nonsense it's an absolute nonsense and so i think what happens is you get this warped idea of who is your people mm. <laughs> you know who are the people that you know you should be or can expect yourself to be similar or dissimilar to in a kind of relative comparator and then I think that's when you get into real trouble which is then you have people comparing themselves to people who a have opportunities wealth whatever nannies healthy well if you think like celebrities when we come back to the whole like health and fitness thing where like you said now we're all trying to aspire to like look like that fitness blogger but you know celebrities we we kind of know that they've got a chef they've got a trainer they've got access to everything you could mm. possibly need to focus on these things um and it's just reminding yourself of that because it's confusing particularly when you know um super successful bloggers actually 
they feel like they're normal people in the sense that they mm. were they were they weren't celebrities that we sure, saw sure, in sure. movies so i think maybe we feel like oh that's more attainable than yeah, jennifer lopez I think absolutely but but it's not because <laughs> that person's actually got a ton of like i'm sure they're getting a ton of free stuff they've got um they're earning really good money and they also have access to these things that celebrities have but we're confused because mm. they're our friend we know them because we followed them for years and they're our friend and yet they have a home gym mm. and they have a pool and they can do all these things that you know we but don't I think there's, there's an extra kind of edge to that which is that we know that um that sense of being you know the girl next door sells so yeah. i think there are a lot of bloggers who really will play up on that oh i'm just like if i can do it you can do it yeah we'll just we're all in this together but the second part of that which is a bit more sinister is the people who are hiding not only the extra help that they might be getting but issues with food issues with exercise and so they're so they're portraying an idea that oh i'm i'm naturally slim or i eat tons of food and i just do this 30 minute workout a day and and i look like this when actually you know the kind of open secret is that a lot of these people are actually quite unwell or that they're hiding how hard they work mm. in order to attain some of the results and the gains or whatever it is that they're getting and so there's again we're getting this kind of warped idea of what normal is yeah. we get a warped idea of what attainable is or even what it should be you know this might be a bold statement but i feel like in some senses in, i feel like we're veering into no it's territory. interesting though but i find this fascinating and i think in fitness in particular and in food and in that space that i have inhabited for a long time um i feel that disorder has become the new normal mm. and so it's normal to restrict certain food groups or it's normal to do a high volume of workouts every single week it's normal to train twice a day mm -hmm. or because that's become normalized and like i said because of that validation you get because i tell you it's addictive <laughs> because of that validation you get you're like oh well i'm gonna keep sharing this and i know people like this mm. um and or you know people really respond when i show my body in a certain way so i've got to keep up that image because i want people to like me mm. but i think in yeah in my experience and it's been really interesting to grow up with a generation of fitness bloggers mm. and i think all of us i think you know i can only truly speak for myself but you know without naming names i feel like there's a generation of us who have gone through that growth in your 20s mm -hmm. where you have that maturity that life perspective and you realize that when you were i think quite innocently pursuing health and fitness because you because we what we saw what was role modeled was six packs and mm. you know intense workout schedules and quote clean eating that we did that too because that was the normal that was what health looked like mm. that's what fitness looked like that's what people that's what people in gyms did you ate out of tupperware <laughs> and you trained a bodybuilding split and that's what it was and so we all followed that um and for me personally, it, it was disordered mm -hmm. and have had to kind of come out that and rediscover what health and fitness is mm -hmm. because I had this, this, this Instagram version of health and fitness. I didn't know what real health and fitness was. And I think part of the inspiration behind um, Train Happy was like, discovering what it was and thinking <laughs> oh my goodness why did no one tell me this why did no one tell me what it actually is why did no one tell me that 
exercise can, you know, um, improve my brain size so that when I'm older, I'm gonna, you know, prevent the onset of Alzheimer's or dementia. Like, why did no one tell me that? Because it's not sexy. <laughs> it's not, it's not it's sexy, the, the is it? The brain is not sexy <laughs> at all. I think that's my perennial issue is trying to make the brain sexy. I'm like, okay guys. And the other thing, you know, with, with a, a weight loss or a fitness plan, you can say, well, do this and you will see results in 12 weeks is the average right. time, yeah. Um, and people, and, and that becomes the motivator. Like, oh, I'm looking, I'm seeing, I'm seeing changes. I can't do that for the brain. Yeah. <laughs> I can't be like, okay, do this and your brain will, you'll, you'll feel a bit better. Like it's, it's really, you've really got to get people to invest in, well, to understand that the future isn't that far away, mm. I think is one thing. But also that it's about playing the long game. I was about to say it's the long game. <laughs> it really is. It, it's this isn't about a you know eight week thing or a four week blitz. It's about how do I invest in myself? How do I take myself seriously enough to care about my future enough mm. to make this investment now for my future? So, and and we live in a very immediate environment. And again, psychologically, we're very immediate creatures you know if i were to say tally i can give you a five an hour or i can give you 20 quid in four weeks you'd be like i'll just take the five i'll just take the five yeah. <laughs> it's, it's how we work and so it's really hard to get out of that automatic kind of heuristic that automatic habit of well i'll just take the payback now rather than a reward that's coming a bit later on and that's why we suffer in terms of taking the brain seriously because mm. it's we can't see it so we can't see that something's awry. No one's going to look at you and go, oh, maybe you should, are you well? Yeah. You know, no one's going to do that. Um, secondly, there's massive stigma around the brain and mental health anyway. So people try not to talk about it, even if they are feeling down. But thirdly, that the the investment takes a little longer to get your payoff. And so it can be, it can feel harder to think that it's worth putting the effort in now. And do you think a lot of thinking, right, this is worth the time and energy is is building your self-worth and building that self-esteem and that um, thinking you are deserving of time and energy spent on you, on, on you know, allowing yourself to have, make 30 minutes to do yoga practice in the morning mm. and thinking, mm. you know, I deserve this. I am worthy of this time. Um, I think a lot of people also like givers and people pleasers and so, we lot of people tend to leave ourselves at the bottom of the list and so this stuff ends up kind of falling away mm -hmm. as we try to do everything else and be everything else mm. um and do you think a lot of that is therefore like i said building that self-worth and putting the boundaries in place to make sure that those things happen mm. i think yes and, and i think it's i think the key shift is moving away and i think i guess i'm talking specifically about investing in your brain health because it's not something that anyone else is going to congratulate or validate you for yeah um so it means you have to move away from a kind of self-objectification mm. and and really kind of being inside yourself so you know someone said to me recently um and it's someone who's she's been quite anxious about doing exercise because she feels like she will be the one who's 
doing it wrong at the front of the class and people will be looking and blah, blah, blah. Um, and so, and that's a very self-objectifying view. It's kind of looking at yourself as an object that's being viewed from the outside and being judged. Um, and then she spoke about feeling having gone for a walk and suddenly realizing at the end of that walk that she felt much better and then thinking, well, duh, <laughs> you know, I did a little bit of movement. I know it's supposed to make me feel better. And, and actually it did. And, and that's why I'm going to be moving because yeah. it, what's important, what's most important is how I feel yes. and the effect on me and the, about prioritizing that over not even what other people are saying or what other people might be thinking, what you think other people might be thinking, which by and large tends to be a projection of your own worst fears about yourself. Mm. So you end up in this little loop about, well, actually this is how I feel. So I'm assuming that's whatever people are thinking. And that's, if that's what they're thinking, then I'd be terribly ashamed. So I won't do it. And you end up just kind of doing it to yourself. Um, so it's really about trying to move away from self-objectification to what I call self-possession understanding mm -hmm. that you your body is your own no one else has the right to say anything about it or you know and even if they do they still don't have the right to and that what's most important is how you feel in yourself that's so powerful and so on board with that self-possession <laughs> i'm just that's a new one i'm gonna take that self-possession <laughs> and i wanted to go back to that objectification mm. and the idea of and now I kind of called myself out on this the other day I saw something <laughs> on Instagram which is actually like more educational I found this really interesting and I'd wonder about your thoughts was that um you know we often say the general advice is and um is that you know the fear is you walk into the gym and everyone's looking at you mm -hmm. and people like me say no they're not they're worried about themselves or whatever mm-hmm and I think that dismisses the experience of some people, um, potentially someone in a larger body, for example, who may walk into a gym and people are looking at them mm -hmm. and they are, you know, we've seen the videos of people being filmed in the gym mm. and and there's like ridiculing people online for doing like different types of exercises or whatever. So that are all like wearing the wrong thing. People do look at other people in the gym and I think it's naive to say that they are. Um, but coming into that self-objectification um angle on it um what would you say in that perspective like in that scenario mm. when because I think for some people it is it's it would be unfair to dismiss that experience mm. no absolutely and I think and I think it's really really tough because if you've been ridiculed or humiliated about your body this and this is the, the the thing we talk about my body as if it's separate from you know my brain mm. when actually we need to understand that we are you yeah and so if you've been shamed for your body actually you've been shamed for who you are you've been shamed for your existence um and that cuts really deep yeah um and so I think it can be very, very, it's, it can be quite slow work sometimes if it's someone who's been in a, a larger body their entire lives. It can be quite slow work to help them because they, they themselves will have devalued themselves, their, their bodies and themselves as, by, um, by extension. So I don't know if I have any kind of, you know, one, two, three kind of top three things. I'd be thinking, first of all, about absolutely 
validating their experience mm. you know and it is awful and i'm sorry this happened to you mm. and i'm sorry that other people have been so awful and that so other people have projected their own cruelty onto you it's unfair that that happened you didn't deserve it it shouldn't have happened mm. um but then also working to help them to disentangle other people's opinions of you from who you really are yes because those are different things um, and also part of that is about handing things back to people. So, and this, and this is, can sometimes happen irrelevant of kind of body stuff. Um, you know, sometimes, because people go around projecting stuff on each other all the time, right? Yeah. So someone can come in and, you know, if I could say, I went, oh, that's an interesting jumper you're wearing. Yeah. And if you were sensitive to that, you could be like, oh, oh, um, you know, it, it could hit, but, but if you can, if you can start to separate other people's opinions from your own opinion of yours, actually you end up going, I wonder why you would choose to say that to me. Why would you choose to say something that makes me feel insecure in, in my own house? That's a, bit, that's a bit mean. Are you a mean person? Mm. You know, and it becomes, it's less about your shame and more about your curiosity about the kind of person who would say that to you. Yeah. So it's about, you know, you start to kind of take the power out of it. Um, but yeah, you know, depending on how long someone's had to live with that kind of assault mm. on their existence, it can be you know, you know longer work. But I think that's the kind of process I would be looking at. And I think that's so important for everyone. I think people get shamed in so many ways and oh, rubbish, feel like innocuous yeah. stuff. Are you eating that? Yes, I am. <laughs> yes, the yeah the yeah, and it's really hard. And this is another therapy nugget that I experienced was someone's like you cannot control other people's opinions you cannot so why bother why bother <laughs> let them have their opinion and move on with your life because that's their opinion that is not you mm -hmm. and that was like like a aha uh -huh moment <laughs> because I'm like yes that's so true um and whether that be about how you choose to exercise mm -hmm. or what you choose to eat or um you know however weight your choices and how you spend your yeah. time. I are think you, are you, a, do you have a good morning routine or, you know? <laughs> that is a bit of a, I won't lie. I don't have a morning routine and, mm -hmm. you know, I feel like as someone on who has a presence online, perhaps I should. I don't know because I, because there's a, there's a kind of a pressure of, do the, I get up at 5 a.m. and, for that. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, there's like all these boxes you have to tick. Mm. And in the wellness space, I think in the, the wellness world, do you have crystals? I personally don't. Do you have all these, you know, do you? Do you have your tarot read? Do you know your no, horoscope? Do you know where no. Mercury is in retrograde at the moment? No. <laughs> but recently my technology was failing me miserably and I had so many DMs telling me Mercury's in retrograde. Mercury's, I was like, well, that's it then. <laughs> well, that's it. Mercury's in retrograde and we're all doomed. <laughs> we're all doomed. I um, particularly like the memes that say uh, Mercury is no longer in retrograde. So now you're responsible for your own mess ups. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. <laughs> What was your perspective on that from a psychological perspective? <laughs> um, I Yeah, I think, do do you think it's like, I don't know, we, we look to something to, to blame or to have a reason. We need to, mm. to, ration, to rationalize things. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I do. I mean, caveat, people can believe what they like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but I do, I, I'm really 
curious about this new revival in kind of spirituality in, yeah and Me esoteric too. ideas and people getting back into horoscopes because i remember when i was like a, a teenager or younger you know people were into there was a collection of like zodiac week by week you could mm. it's like a collection my mum used to get it um and you know reading your horoscopes with a thing and tarot cards and then that went all quiet and now we've got this new resurgence my personal hypothesis is that we're kind of trapped in between two kinds of two eras so one is the kind of we've lived with religion and spirit spirituality spirituality and theology for a long time again innately humans are meaning making creatures we look for patterns in things um and so you know even to the point where if i drew three dots on the wall you would see a face because we're, we're always looking for patterns mm. and trying to see significance and meanings in things that might otherwise be innocuous and that's one of the theories if you're not religious as to why religion emerges because it helps to create meaning out of otherwise chaotic environments in a chaotic universe um and i feel like we're stuck between this quite interesting era where we now know enough science for fewer people to think is there a big man in the sky looking down at us and making decisions about us and making decisions about the way that we think you know fewer people are on board with that yet we still have this need for explanation explanations mm. and meanings and and direction and a pathway i think it's very very frightening to think then well if god doesn't have a plan for me who does who does because i don't have a what's plan going on? <laughs> i don't know what's happening and so i think there is this innate drive to feel as if something has there's an answer somewhere and if we look hard enough we'll be able to find it so my sense is that with this resurgence kind of fits this little niche because it it looks half and half i feel like it's half spiritual and half scientific right it's people say oh yeah but it's you know it's the universe and it's the energy of the universe oh but because of quantum physics it's this this and this and so it becomes this merging of the esoteric and the scientific which people feel much more comfortable with in a kind of post-theological mm. post-modern world i i completely agree with you i think it's um yeah and i think we all need i think we all need something to help us explain things and help us rationalize things and that is different for everyone and having grown up in a, a very christian religious family that held those core beliefs very tightly um it brings great comfort to people mm. in my family. Absolutely. And so I see spirituality bringing great comfort to other mm. people. Um, and we're in very uncomfortable times. Yeah. Right? And it's I think- It's never um, looked so shaky and <laughs> uncertain for especially younger people. And I think uh, we, I, there's discussion about this, um, particularly from kind of uh, certain people in America I've seen talk about how they think wellness is this new, um, almost has that, yeah, religion, no, religion aspect because religion. it provides meaning and purpose and um all hail goop <laughs> well yeah it, it has it has so many of the features right it has you have your gurus mm. you have the false prophets yeah you have your different churches so you know even as far as if we even look uh, in a dietary sense you have the 
ketos versus the paleos, the church of vegan, mm. you know, and all of the, so it's almost as if you have these different branches of Christianity yeah. all under one basic tenant, which yeah. is health is the ultimate goal. And that's what we should all be striving for. So I think it fits a lot of the features of a religion. It does. And I think also to have that connection and community aspect, mm -hmm. I think I'm thinking of something like a Slimming World or Weight Watchers. I mean, they do meet in church halls, many of them, yeah. but it is bringing people together in that space to have this mutual connection and bond mm. um and you know look to a higher power to outsource the you know information we need and to lead us in the direction mm. of how we should be eating or i mean even as far as you know the medical medium who literally says he gets his information yes. from spirits so it's you know it's 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 kind of all that. Yeah. It, it, it's a really fascinating time. Um, and I, yeah, I don't know about you, but like you said, you've, you, on the one hand, you have this wellness world where I think fitness and uh, food and all that stuff is kind of heading into this kind of pretty intense direction. Mm -hmm. And then I, and then I think, and I would include myself in this, have people um who are pushing back against that mm -hmm. and are wanting to kind of recalibrate how we feel about food and fitness um and obviously things like intuitive eating having this mm. i mean it's been around for, for 25 years and even before that but um having this moment now mm -hmm. of people are like well hang on a minute i followed that religion for so long and it feels like it didn't work and i didn't get the answers i wanted mm. and I cannot carry on that way. I need a new path. Um, I'm fed up of being at war with myself. I'm fed up of fighting for this greater good. Mm -hmm. um, and I now need to, I wanna follow a new path and um, try things a bit differently. Um, and perhaps try different methods of achieving that. And I, I do think, um, so I'm hopeful and optimistic in mm. that sense that there is a, a pushback, uh, people swimming against the tide a bit. I think so, yeah. And, and people being a little bit, I mean, I posted like a bacon sandwich and some beans on toast. Or like, someone literally posted, I think this is the first bacon sandwich I've ever seen on Instagram. And yes. it's, you know, little things. I feel like you need to help remind people that it's not all avocado toast and, you know, smoothie mm. bowls. That actually, that's the other part of this, which is we're really, this is a very elite if we're thinking about online wellness, it's a very elite, small niche, quite privileged oh, group yeah. of people. And you don't have whole... your average person owning um, moringa powder. Like that's not your standard <laughs> cupboard staple that you'd buy from your corner shop. And so there's this, the, the, the risk is that there are, which I always think about is that the people who would most benefit from all of these things, from knowing about, oh, different types of exercise from access to i don't know sweat lodges whatever it might be the people who would benefit from it most are the people who have least access to it yes. because they're expensive because they're in you know areas of the country that not everybody can get to or access because people use a different kind of language actually there's a whole jargon around it that you need to kind of be with on the in crowd with the in crowd to, to understand mm. and i think we need to be thinking much more about who's this message is for again are, are people preaching to the the choir you know mm. actually they call it the worried well i like that phrase <laughs> <laughs> yeah um and but 
is that the point to, to speak to people who are already well mm. is if that's what wellness is about then what's the point i thought yeah. wellness was supposed to be about helping people to achieve optimum health through their own lifestyle uh interventions and and through kind of empowering people to make changes in their lives then why are you giving it to people who don't need it yeah like, it doesn't make sense it doesn't <laughs> and how how do you i mean this is a huge question but how do you see this becoming more accessible for, uh, particularly from a mental health perspective, um, for poorer communities mm. who, like we said, who do need it most, who are going through shit for want of a better word and um, could really benefit from this information? How do we mm. get it out there? Yeah, I think this is one way in which social media can be put to good use um so providing good quality resources so that's why that's why i do my podcast basically mm. is i want to put good quality mental health information out there can i just pause for a second and say i adore your podcast i find it <laughs> such a great resource Kimberly seems to I don't know if you scripted it or however you do it but you just seem to do like a one take wonder and it's like perfectly <laughs> said and as someone who's recorded many podcasts in my time it's never normally that straightforward and I have gained so much information from your podcasts your people pleasing one always sticks with me and <laughs> um, so I think you know it's that is a fantastic resource yeah and and really about I think because one of the things, you know, lots of people do have access to Instagram. Um, and maybe it's about finding out how you can reach other audiences who aren't just people who look like you mm. or people who live near you or people who already go to your yoga class. Like how, if you really care about having a an accessible message that's available and usable for lots and lots of different people then actually the onus is on the content creator to go and make your message available to them mm. go and find people um put those people on your platforms but also um which i hope to do is to try to do more work with well unknowns and also charities mm. so actually can we use our platforms to boost women's refuges or refugee uh, um, organizations, soup kitchens and food banks. Like, can we use our platforms in order to raise that message and to kind of get people to kind of, you know, out of the kind of navel gazing and self-congratulatory stuff. And mm. Aren't we all doing so well? And thinking about perhaps what our responsibility might be to other people. So I think... Um, I think there's something about helping to nudge the people, you know, and people are allowed to do well, but if you really, if that's your ethos, if you really, you're saying that you care and that you want to reach people, then you really need to demonstrate it. Mm. And yeah, that, I mean, that's been a learning curve for me and something I'm still kind of figuring out because you don't see it happen much. So trying to figure out what that looks like and how, how mm. that works. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I, it is it's not obvious necessarily um so i asked that question with genuine curiosity mm, of like yeah. i'd be intrigued to hear your thoughts um i really wanted in the book to have different people demonstrating the exercises as an example mm. of showing different people from different backgrounds moving so that there's not just a thin white woman blonde <laughs> woman <laughs> in there doing exercise because 
we know that we 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 know mm. in the sense mm. of we've seen that enough times we know, we identify the exercises for those people and i think i do think there's a strong sense of like um you have to see it to feel like you can be mm. it and i think that's why this girl can was so yeah so important tremendously well didn't it? like huge and can. i think i've put the stat in the book and i think it's something like three million got three million it's people incredible. moving it's incredible um and that will only be growing um and i know that there's they're still going and they're all over the country um so i see that as a real positive mm. and i do hope that because that's had such great success that the rest of the fitness industry kind of catches up and says ha huh, so i'm seeing all these people with different body types of different ages mm. of different backgrounds i'm seeing um you know different abilities i'm seeing these people and look at this positive impact i i can market to those people too because mm. i feel like a big thing is the marketing is not market is marketing one type of person yeah. um which in fact uh means you cut out a whole community of people you, mm. cu you cut out a whole um revenue stream yeah um i'm thinking of i mean thinking of activewear lines who just make activewear up to a size 18 for example and you're not catering for people in bigger bodies and those people wear clothes too and they have money too <laughs> and you know they'd like mm. to work out too and yet there's a barrier of mm. there's not clothes in my size or not clothes that i like in my size mm. Mm -hmm. um i think you know that's something that i hope you know i'm gonna try and do my bit but i think the mm. fitness industry as a whole needs to like step up and mm. say hang on a minute we're actually like we said catering for those worried well <laughs> we're catering for the people who don't need it and again who, i mean there know. is a financial incentive in that because i you know i've in discussions around around my book i've been thinking i was like well <laughs> i was so naive i was like i'd like to price it so it was like really available yeah people. and you know there are things that ditto. are out of my <laughs> ditto <laughs> and i was just like oh um, basically we can't do that like, okay um but how do we get you know because this is really important information the poorer you are the shorter you will live mm. right is it something like uh, around about 20 year like lifespan difference between the people in the poorest postcode versus the people in the wealthiest postcode is it, is, i think is it, as, is it as large as that uh, it's 20 years certainly for people with severe mental illness live okay 20 years shorter than the average population um and i, I i've got a stat in my book about glasgow <laughs> um because people in scotland have a shorter life expectancy than people who live in england mm. um and even in different parts of glasgow there can be years difference between the different postcodes i can't remember the top of my head now but again we're talking about the impact of the environment on your health and that's the part of it which is outside of your hands you know mm. and, and again we need to make it clear to people that not all of your health is in your own hands yeah you know, there are the, the social determinants of health mm. um, and that's about where you're born your education options the quality of the healthcare in your environment the level of education your parents had the medications you might have been exposed to in utero like all of this stuff affects your health um and but that what that means though is that wellness should be reaching out to the people who are most deprived mm. in order to help bring them up yeah. to a more equal footing to the people who are already in the good postcodes with the good doctors going to the good schools with the educated parents with the waitrose down the road like and and that's where i think wellness is failing mm. um or not even thinking about it like you know everyone's kind of sitting around shaking each other's hands going well done you know great job mm. um but there's a whole 
group of well, millions of people across the country and even more across the world who are being completely ignored because they don't have the financial input the, the, to, to make the stake you know mm. they're not buying the books they're not going they can't go to the events they not going to the events the not buying yeah. the leggings and so they're economically discarded and cut out yeah. from the opportunities and that's that would be i think an incredibly powerful and positive thing for the wellness industry mm. to get a grip on um and that would have to just be kind of philanthropic i think yeah. people would need to do it just because they care enough mm. not because they're going to get any money or endorsement or, or anything else from it um there's something amazing that I, f I follow on instagram there, there are these uh, people that run something called the billy project mm. and it's um in the midlands i think and they have they're going into communities and holding um you know weight training workshops for teenage girls um who might not have had access to that who might have had access to coaching or anything like that um and it's a charity and they're awesome i, I follow what they do and they're going into communities they, they're working um with i yeah with younger communities with disadvantaged communities and it's so important um and yeah it's something i is just very on my mind in terms mm. of you know what can i proactively do um and on a larger scale like eventually i got i got big plans <laughs> big dreams but um you know how can mm. we start to you know get this message out there to the, you're right to the people that need it um and so i think it'll be interesting where mm. where where this all ends up in so. the kind of next five years Kimberly, this has been a real journey. I feel like we navigated the path quite well, actually. It was such, so insightful as always. I knew this was going to be um, a really great discussion because you're just full of information. And <laughs> I, just, I just like to sit like a sponge and just absorb as much as possible. Very um, kind. Where can people find you, find your book? Where can, when Tell us more about that. Yes, yeah, so um, my book, How to Build a Healthy Brain, uh, which... I kind of want to just be a Bible for brain health. So I've gone through the latest, you know, and I'm still kind of in the editing stage and I'm still cramming in, sliding in extra uh, research Like November papers. 2019. <laughs> I'm like, exactly. I'm like, this one just came out. Can I put it in? Can I put it in? Um, so I go through all of the best evidence. So uh, systematic reviews, meta-analyses on cohorts of humans. So not my studies. Um, looking at the different lifestyle factors i.e the things that you have some power over mm. that can affect your long-term brain health um and so i start out with the stuff that you might expect sleep nutrition big the, the chapter on food is so big they wanted to cut it down and you're like <laughs> nope <laughs> it all stays um exercise i look at attention in terms of uh, so meditation through attention because i actually think that it's the the act of paying attention which mm. gives you the brain benefits so i go through all the science of that um how flossing can reduce your risk of alzheimer's disease yes you mentioned this little <laughs> nugget um recently and i i was like mind blown 
So I can't wait to all read. of that yeah. stuff. Uh, but then I also do because the thing that people miss out in terms of brain health and mental health is that it's your emotional health, which is a big factor. When we're assessing someone for psychological illness, actually we're saying, how have you been feeling? Has your feeling, have, have the things that you've been feeling appro been appropriate to your circumstances? Mm. Are people laughing in the right places? Are you crying uncontrollably? So actually it's your emotional states, which tells us so much about mm. your mental health. But we don't get, we don't give people information about managing their emotions no. or understanding their emotions. Or talking, um, about, or their talking emotions. about their emotions. So I have a section on basically everyday emotion management. I talk about the big emotions that people don't really like, anger, guilt, shame, envy, um, how to understand them, what they mean, how to manage them, how to take care of your mental health, whether therapy might be useful for you or not, um, and protecting the mental health of children. So a little section for parents on kind of do's and don'ts of creating or supporting good mental health in your children so i've tried to cover the whole thing it's out uh march 5th 2020 um in all good bookshops and uh otherwise uh, i'm mostly on instagram i'm everywhere on socials i'm food and psych so i don't follow me on facebook i haven't done anything on facebook for a long time <laughs> but uh on twitter and instagram and my podcast stronger minds and uh yeah I can't wait for that book. I am going to, I mean, I pre-ordered it already, so it's coming, I but I so can't much. wait um, because, yeah, like I said, you are a mine of information. Um, and so I can't wait to read. Thank you so, Thank much, you so much for, for coming on. Me. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Okay, bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.